whole of the psalm this morning is the text, Psalm 128. This is God's Word. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. That's how far we read the Holy Scripture. And you see in the bulletin, the theme of the sermon is the happiness of the God-centered home. The happiness of the God-centered home. You must not imagine that the minister is inventing a word there at the beginning of the theme. But you must see that the theme is biblical. I imagine that sometimes solid, sturdy, reformed people think that perhaps if you desire to be happy, that's sometime, somehow a sign of weakness. Happy. Well, we don't want to be happy. We want to be faithful. We want to be blessed. And yet, the word blessed in the text, blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, is the word that means happy. And that word is used twice and perhaps even three times in the text. And we can read the text this way. Happy is everyone that fears the Lord, that walks in his ways. And then in verse 2, thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. This text is about the happiness of a god centered home, happiness. It ought not surprise you because the Psalms are filled with that. If you think of Psalter 89 and the title of it, The Secret of a Happy Life. And then the first stanza in Psalter 89, He who would long and happy be, let him my counsel hear. Or in Psalter 90, verse 6, Who seek long life and happy days. And so the versification of Psalm 128 that we're going to sing at the end of the service is, of course, family happiness. But you think of other psalms. Psalter 393, oh, happy land, oh, happy people. Three times that's repeated there. And then Psalter 400, happy is the man that chooses Israel's God to be his guide. And then you remember that this is the Reformed Confession. The Reformed Creed begins, the Heidelberg Catechism does, by asking about your happiness. How many things must you know in order that, enjoying this comfort, you may live and die happily? And so you eighth and ninth graders who take catechism and learn the Heidelberg Catechism, recognize that language. The Reformed faith is interested in our happiness. In the Belgian Confession, for example, God, seeing Adam and Eve in their misery, promised Jesus Christ so that they would be happy. That's the language of the creed. And then in 
Belgian Confession, Article 23, when it talks about justification by faith, says, this is the happiness of a man that God does not impute his sin to him. Happy, happy, happy. And that's the biblical emphasis of our text in Psalm 128 this morning. Happy is the man that fears the Lord and woman who's married to him and children who sit around his table. Happy is that man and that woman. So let me call your attention this morning to the happiness of a God-centered home or a covenant home, if you'd put it that way. And then notice in the first place the heavenly pattern. In the second place, the covenant life. And then in the third place, the divine purpose. You start with the heavenly pattern, and only then can you understand what the covenant life in the home is all about. And none of it will hold together unless you see the divine ultimate purpose. Pattern, life, and purpose. I begin this morning with pattern, not because ministers like to go deep into texts or seminary professors like to think as profoundly as they can, but simply because when anyone looks at this text, even you children look at this text, you would be forced to say something about the pattern in God's own life, after which we must model our lives and homes. Start with the divine pattern. We do that because the whole of the Bible teaches us that what God does here among us is modeled after what he does there in his own life. What we see here as it ought to be, and sometimes is, though with many imperfections, is a reflection of his life there without any imperfections. We know that from all of the scripture, but we also know that from this text because the text begins that way. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. That's the first point of the sermon this morning. In order to understand what the covenant life in our lives ought to be, we need to ask, what are his ways? Now, there are a couple of different ways you can understand that expression. His ways are the ways that he prescribes for us but aren't the ways that he lives. A business owner might say, this is the way I am going to run my business, and this is the way you must conduct yourself in my business. And that business reflects not a word or at all about his own personal life, but not God. God says, blessed is the man that walks in my ways and means, look at me first, and then you can understand something about your life. So in the first point, children, we're going to look up. And when we look up and see God, we're going to see three things to start. That God has fellowship. That's one of the very first things that we learn in biblical revelation. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, God didn't say, let me, 
but he said, let us. And that tips us off to the reality that in God, though there is only one God, in God there is more than one. And you all understand that to be the doctrine of the Trinity. God is not a lonely God. He's a God who has fellowship. One person speaking to another person, both those having fellowship in the third person and delighting in that fellowship of the Father, in the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. Fellowship. That's first. In the second place, that fellowship that God has is family fellowship. Not the kind of fellowship that a Tom and a Dick and a Harry may have, three men, unrelated, or a Mary and a Sue and an Ellen may have, unrelated, but the fellowship of a family where there is father, son, who fellowship together as a family God in the Holy Spirit. They're related, and they're related in the way that you fathers are related to your sons and your daughters. You begat them, probably. You might have had them by adoption. We'll talk about that in a moment but usually you bring them forth from your very own being so that what you see is you. He came or she came from you. Their nature is your nature. When we look up and see God, that's the way it is in His life. The Father begets the, begets the Son. Eternally, He begat Him. Always, He was bringing forth the Son so that the one that the Father sees is of His own being. His own nature, it's the same. There's a distinction in persons. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and yet they are of the same essence. Essence. That's why it's so important in John 1, verse 18, that you read, the only begotten Son, the only begotten Son. He's not the only Son. There are some modern translations today that translate it that way, leaving out the word begotten. That's a mistake, and it's a very serious mistake because Jesus isn't God's only son. All of us are sons of God and daughters, but he is the only begotten son that is the son that comes out of his being. And that's why Jesus could say when people said, show me the Father, He'd say, you don't need to see the Father. Look at me. And when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. He's a spitten image, as we may say, of the Father. When you look up, you see fellowship. When you look up in the second place, you see family fellowship. And when you look up, you see in the third place, close, the closest family fellowship. Some families are close. Some families are very close. This family is as close as any family could be. And that's why John 1.18 also says that the only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father, right here. If you children wonder what that word bosom means, and there are some translations who don't use that word, they say he's next to the Father, and that's a wrong translation too. A person's bosom is that part of his body between his arms or her arms, right here, right here. 
You read in the gospel narratives that John, the disciple John, lay in the bosom of Jesus. His head was right here. They were close. And when we look up in heaven and see the fellowship, this family fellowship, it's so close that you must imagine the Son always in the bosom of the Father. When your children want to be close to mom and close to dad, you're scared, you want to know how much they love you, you put your head right here. When you look up in heaven and see God, that's what you must imagine. When that God reveals himself down to us, now let's imagine a pyramid. It starts there. When he reveals himself to us, it's not surprising at all that what you see God does is a reflection of who God is. What God does is a reflection of who he is. And now I'm not going all the way down now to individual earthly families. We'll come back to that in a moment. That's really the focus of the psalm. But we have to start with his ways. And we're still in the first point of the sermon. When that God begins to work, he works always a family work. And so when God establishes his covenant with us, it's a family covenant. And when God saves us, it's a family salvation. There are five things that we can see about that and learn about God from his big family called the church. In the first place, when he saves his people, he makes them his children. That's the language of the scripture. God has children. The gathering of his church is put in those terms, having children. He has many, many children. He has one child, naturally. He has a multitude of children by adoption. And that's how the scripture speaks of our salvation. He adopts us into his family and says, though you are not naturally mine, you become mine by sovereign grace and the blood of my son by which I bought you and made you mine. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of our salvation. We who are enemies now are friends. We who are orphans now are sons and daughters of God. And then marvel of marvels what he does to us adopted children. No earthly father and mother can do to their adopted children. He makes us look like him spiritually. So in his salvation of us, he first says, you're mine. And here are the papers to prove it. And then he goes to work on us gradually so that more and more we look like him spiritually. And just as I can say about some children about whom I do not know their names, you look like your father or you look like your mother. When others look at us as Christians, they can say you look like your father in heaven. And I can recognize who he is, not now by our earthly facial features, skin color, or hair, but by our conduct. He forms us more and more into God's own image. Righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. That's his saving work of us. It's a family work whereby 
He adopts us into his family. He gives us his own life and regeneration. And by that life, he makes us look like him spiritually. In the second place, when he does that saving work, he does not save you and put you out in some isolated spot in this world. He brings you into his family. And so the church is called his family. It really is. Read Galatians 6.10. The church is called the household of faith. Read Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 where it refers to the church as the family and Jesus Christ as the one in whom the whole family on heaven, in heaven and on earth is named. The family here is named after him, Christian family. And so Paul says to Titus and Timothy, don't rebuke an elder, entreat him as a father. And the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? There stood his mother and his disciple John. He said, Behold your son to his mother, and behold your mother to his disciple. He was teaching them what the family of God is all about. In the third place, in that family, we have one elder brother. One. In our earthly families, there is no favoritism. There must be no Joseph in any family here, treated differently than all of the others. But in his family, there is one who is an elder brother, and his name is the Lord Jesus and we give him the honor as of no other family member. He's the firstborn, Romans 8 says, of many brethren. In the fourth place, in this family, we fellowship with God in family love and at the family table. We love the Father. We want to be with him. We want to hear him talk to us. He speaks to us in a family way. He shows us a, a fatherly face, and we respond to him as dear children. That's what that table is all about there symbolically. And though we only sit around that table even symbolically a couple of times, maybe three or four times per year, that's what we're doing every time we come together in worship. Every time we come together in worship, we are, as it were, putting our feet with all of the other family members here under that table and eating a meal with God. The only time we eat a meal is not on the Lord's Supper Sunday, but is every single Sunday when we come together and the minister gives to you the bread of life in behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you eat and drink him every time. This today, at this moment, is a family meal. That's why you're here, and that's why you're going to come together again in this afternoon or evening so you can eat and drink again with your family. And then in the end, it's going to be family life too when all these earthly families fade away. And that's not my wife any longer in heaven. And these are not your children anymore in heaven. 
It's going to be a family where I am closer to her in heaven, even though in heaven she's not my wife, and you are closer to your children than you are now, even though they're not your own children. In my father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a room for you, Jesus said. Don't think separate rooms. Think house and a place in that house for you. And it's all possible, people of God, because God gave his own son, his firstborn, who naturally was his, to give up his own life so that all of us who aren't naturally his could have a place at his table. Those are his ways. You understand why it's so important before we talk about husband, wife, children, by the sides of thine home, fruitful vine, olive plants. Before we talk about any of that, we need to understand what are his ways. And then you can begin to see, and now we lead the second point of the sermon. You begin to see why God designed our families as he did. So that we could walk in his ways. This is the best way. You see why good family life is important. And you see also why the devil is so determined to destroy good family life. Why he's pro-divorce and pro-abortion. He's anti-marriage and anti-family. He hates godly marriages. He hates godly children. He loves mothers leaving their children to work outside of the home. And he howls with joy when he sees family, thinking family time is not around the table, but around the entertainment center or something else. Those are his ways. Now, we came down to see God's ways in the church. And we also see that in the church, at times, some of the people of God have the privilege to experience the kind of family life that's described in this psalm, where there is a man who is married to a woman to whom God gives children. Not always. Maybe, in God's providence, for a little while, until that earthly family is finished, and this family, again, is the most important thing in our hearts. But for a time, to some, God gives a man or a woman to be married, and to some of them, children. And in that, they reflect his life. But it starts, people of God, with a man who fears the Lord. We're talking about the happiness, remember? The happiness of a man and the woman and the children. And the happiness of that man is the man who fears God and understands something about his ways. Let me make it very plain this morning. The happiness of the man is not that he has a new home 
filled with all nice furniture, modern floor coverings, and a barn out back where he can park his motorhome and his boat and his nice new cars, where he has closets full of all of the up-to-date clothing for him and his wife and his children. There's nothing wrong, perhaps, with having that if the Lord gives the ability to have that. But woe to that man who thinks that's his happiness, and woe to that young person who thinks he can't be happy unless he has that. I've been a minister now for almost 40 years, and I've seen a lot of troubled homes. And the troubled homes I can think of most vividly are those homes where they had everything that they wanted and more. That's not happiness. That's not blessedness. In fact, I think probably more trouble in homes that were wealthy than in homes where they were poor. So I urge you, people of God, in the name of God, who have the ability to have a nice home and a big barn and many things, I urge you, in the name of God, never leave the impression with your children that your happiness is bound to those things. And never leave your children the impression that they can't be happy unless they have those things, things. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Or to put that in Northwest Iowa terms, better is the dinner of field corn just field corn, where there's love and godliness and the fear of God in the home. And with a roast and potatoes and vegetables, every meal where there's hatred and there's strife. The home is blessed and the home is happy, people of God, where they fear God. And then you understand the fear of God is not that we're terrified of God, not that that man who's the head of his home is afraid of God, although there ought to be sometimes some being afraid of God when we're living in godlessness. But that's not what the fear of God means in the text. Blesses is everyone that feareth the Lord. It's the fear of reverence and esteem. It's the fear of the man who recognizes what God has given him, whether he's a single man or a married man, a married man with children or without children, the fear of God is the recognition in that man that God gave him a place at his own table in the church of Christ, and he does not deserve that for a moment. God gave me a place in his family, and God gives me the hope that someday I'm going to have a room in his home in heaven God gave me the adoption of sons. God gave me the forgiveness of sins. God made me a brother of our Lord Jesus Christ who is closer than any brother on this side of the grave. Happy is the man who fears God. And then to go more closely now to the elements of the text, that man looks for a woman who, like him, fears God. They can't walk together unless they're agreed in that. And so that young man who looks for a wife looks for a woman who, like him, is stunned at the reality that they even have a place in the house of God and the church of Christ. 
God chose me. God adopted me. God regenerated me. God made me look like him. And then the two together come in marriage. And if it be God's will, they bear children. And that's how the psalm describes this wife. She's a fruitful vine. There's another example of a bad translation in some of the modern translations. One of them simply says she's contented in your home and leaves out completely the idea of being fruitful. But you you children understand the idea of fruitfulness. Remember when the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan and saw for the first time the vineyards hanging heavy with large clusters of grapes and they put them over their shoulders on poles and brought them back to the Israelites and said, this is the kind of land that God gave us to inherit. It's fruitful. Many fruits are produced. And now the Bible uses that as a figure of speech to describe the woman who fears God. If in God's providence her womb is not closed, she wants to be fruitful, and she is fruitful. God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. And when they do that, people of God, they reflect, husband and wife, reflect the relationship between God and his church. When the relationship between Dune Protestant Reformed Church, bride, and God in heaven, in Jesus Christ, bridegroom, when that relationship is good and healthy, then this bride produces children and you will see them sleeping on dad and mom's lap in the worship and coming to the catechism classes and going to the Christian schools and being taught in the fear of God. When that relationship is good, then God gives fruitfulness to the church. I say that relationship is reflected in our relationships, that the woman, under the blessing of God, bears children and bears children who are many. So women ought not look on fruitfulness as a burden, but a blessing. And how do you say that to a congregation when some have children and others would like to have children and don't? We understand that. God understands that. But a woman who is able to bear must not look at fruitfulness as a burden, but as a blessing. Women in Israel ought not to be afraid to have children and even have many children. And then a woman who's able to have many children responds, yes, happy is the man, but what about the woman whose quiver is about to burst and whose burdens bearing children almost break her? What about me who for 20 and maybe 40 years need to care for these children? What about me? And then the word of God comes to them, those women, and says, not only is the man happy, but his wife is happy under the blessing of God. She shall be saved in childbearing. Remember these words of the scripture. These are his ways. It isn't easy, though, for women. I understand that. God understands that. The trend is to have one or two, and the the butt of jokes in the grocery store is when the woman pushing the grocery cart has two or three preschoolers trailing along with her. 
what in the world are you doing, they say to her. And the gynecologist becomes angry when she's pregnant with her third or fourth or especially fifth. And even other Christians can't imagine why you would want more than a couple of children. Then the encouragement of this psalm is needed. The wife is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine. And the second thing the text says about this wife is that she lives inside the house. And even though the text says by the sides of the house, the other translations do better than the King James here because they put the woman right inside the house. The King James translation by the sides of the house was understood in 1611 to indicate exactly that as David was hiding by the sides of the cave when he was fleeing from Saul and he was deep in the cave and as Jonah was sleeping by the sides of the ship when the storm was raging and he was there in the bowels of the ship, the people of God understood Psalm 128 when it says that the wife is by the sides of the house that is deep in the very heart of the house. That's where this woman who fears God belongs. And the New Testament confirms that too. The older women need to teach the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, and keepers at home. That's Paul to Titus, Paul to Timothy. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house. And then he follows that by saying, and give none occasion to the enemy to speak reproachfully because the woman who has children but does not want to care for the children by living in the home gives occasion to the enemy to mock the church of Jesus Christ. Moms, the greatest calling in all of the world for you is to raise those children until they're gone. It's the highest calling in the world. It's more important than the President of the United States. You mothers, and even the ancient understood that when they used the expression, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. By the sides of the home. There are pressures there too, aren't there? Not only pressures not to have children and not to have many children, but to have a couple of children and then let somebody else take care of them. And I believe it's not improper to say in a sermon on a text like this that if the benevolent fund went to zero, and the couple decided that she needed to bring the kids to be cared for by somebody else so that both of them could earn a wage or to support the family. It's not an exaggeration to say that if the benevolent fund went to zero, all of us would be willing, not just obliged, but willing to sell our homes, those nice homes, and all of the toys in our barns so that that one woman would not be required in her mind to go out to work by the sides of the home. The children are like olive plants. Well, I was pausing because I knew I had one more thing to say. Just this, that would apply to a single woman too. A woman who in the providence of God for some reason or another has children, but not a husband. 
he should be home too. And all of us through the diaconate willing to support a woman like that. And then the children, the word of God says, are like olive plants round about thy table. Oh, that God would give us children like olive plants today. The olive plant was a, a precious tree. It was called in the book of Judges the king of trees because you used it for cooking and eating and medicine and cosmetics and fuel. It was precious. It was slow growing and required tenderest care and was a sign if there was a grove of olive trees of peace in the land because whenever there was war, the enemy would come, look for the olive groves and score all of the trunks of those olive trees so that they would die. So that whenever you would see a land with a healthy grove of mature olive trees, you know there was peace in that land. It took them years to come to full maturity. Beautiful plants. Hosea says, his branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree. And all of that is a figure of speech to help us understand what covenant children are. Oh, people of God, how precious are those little children when they become a little bit older and then become mature members of the church. They're not very fruitful for the blessing of the church now yet, but wait a little while. And they'll become so precious. They'll say there's nothing more valuable for the church of Christ than covenant children who mature, grow up in the church, and begin serving the Lord Jesus Christ that way. How precious. But how long it takes for them to mature and what carefulness and peace that requires. You think of some plants compared to the olive tree, 10 years before full maturity, some plants, you plant them in the spring and by the end of the summer, they're producing fruit already. There are other fruit trees that take just a year or two before they're fruitful. In the animal world then, you think of some animals. Well, in the reptile world, there's no care given to the offspring. Not at all. And then you think even in the world of mammals. It takes a little while for them to mature enough to be on their own. Maybe a whole year. Maybe a couple of years. And then you think of what God made us to be. How long it takes for a five or six or seven year old child to become fully mature and fruitful, 18 or 19 or 20 years often. Careful nurture, day after day, year after year, first on your lap, then with their feet under the table, reading the word of God to them, teaching them the ways of the Lord, and finally, though parents weep when they go, they breathe a sigh. It's been a long long journey, but finally they're mature. And then don't forget that it takes peace. Usually the first casualties of war are those children. In the church, war in the church, you watch what happens to the children. War in the family between dad and mom. You pray that the Lord spare those children, but watch what often happens. 
It takes peace. I pray for peace for our children. Olive plants round about thy table. And that's the second thing about this text. They're round about the table of the parents. They're not round about the entertainment center. They're round about the table so that just as you and I in the family of faith always come on the Lord's Day and twice on the Lord's Day when Dad says it's time to eat, we leave our homes and we come to this place to have two good meals. We put our feet under this table so you expect your children in your homes and families to be home and put their feet under your table and eat and drink with you. That's the symbol not only, but that's the reality of good family life. Family life must not be governed by our children's athletic abilities so that we'll have devotions only when we have time to have devotions and they're not out playing ball somewhere. Family life is determined by our fear of God. When we say to our children, you are going to be home and we are going to, even if it needs to, require us to be creative, we are going to see to it that we have regular times of family worship where dad sitting at the head of the table can talk to mom and the children round about that table. That's family life. That's happy family life. That's the prescription of the Word of God. And that's because, that's because covenant life is after his Remember, it all starts with a man that fears God. So a little review here of the second point now. It all starts with a man who fears God and reverences him and is profoundly grateful for the place that God gave him to have at his table. And that man seeks a woman who fears God. And then if in the providence of God, God gives them their own earthly children, this is the way their home is going to look. Children round about the table who after 18 or 20 years mature to be olive plants, fruitful, valuable to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happiness is. So I urge you young men, if you want to be married and you aren't married yet, don't look for the attractive woman outwardly, and you young women, don't look for the attractive man outwardly. Don't look for the man who's going to make a lot of money. Ask yourself the question, whether you would date him or her with your eyes closed, you never saw him or her. Ask yourself this question, do they fear God? And if you can say yes to that question, they fear God. And you can go into marriage confident that God's going to make your home a happy home. Blessed and happy is that man or that woman who fears God and lives in that kind of covenant life. But now we need to go back, back, because these are temporary and this church is permanent. And the text indicates that too. The purpose, the divine purpose is not, first of all, our happiness in our marriages and families. The 
ultimate purpose, God's purpose, is that whatever kind of earthly family circumstance we live in, single, married, childless, children, whatever family circumstance we live in, in an earthly sense, it all must be aimed at this, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. I say the text indicates that. In verse 5, it indicates that the blessing that we need as earthly families comes from the church. Out of Zion, your blessings come. And Zion and Jerusalem and Israel and the last two verses of the text are simple types of the church. Zion, Jerusalem, Israel. Where does your blessing come from? The church. What must you live for and aim at? And the answer is the same. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I say your earthly family must never get in the way of this family. And your family gatherings must never trump this family gathering. And if on a holiday someone asks you what you're going to be doing that day, and you say getting together with our family, then stop yourself for a moment, bite your tongue, and think about what kind of earthly family they are in. And perhaps before you say we're getting together with our family, say we're having a gathering and we would like you to come to our gathering because we do not want anyone's earthly family life to be a painful thing for them when they see someone else's earthly family life is so rich and broad. The church, Dune Protestant Reformed Church, trumps your family, Mr. and Mrs., Dad and Mom, Grandpa and Grandma, this from Zion, and then the promise is you will see peace upon Israel because ultimately that's what God is aiming at. People of God, the Lord says there's happiness for the child of God whether you are married or not and whether you have children or not. The happiness of the man and the woman and the children is when we fear God and we have this as our family. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we pray that there may be blessing not only pronounced upon this congregation as we depart, but that it may be felt and received and experienced and delighted in by every one of thy people who is gathered here. Use thy word, we pray, for the blessing of this people. Use it for our correction if we need correction. Use it for our food and drink that we may be strong to live in godliness depending upon thee and for the church which is thy beloved blood-bought people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.